I don't think pride is a possibility in many, many areas. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I celebrate pride, I celebrate pride as a like a privileged life I'm living, something that I didn't know growing up would be possible. Growing up being out wasn't even a thing that I even thought because I had never seen LGBTQ plus people out there. I had never seen any of that out there. So it's more about seeing that representation and then being that representation for other people because I never get to experience any of that growing up. Welcome to Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Burhan, a Pakistani LGBTQ plus activist who identify as queer. Born and raised in Pakistan, Burhan took fashion and photography as an outlet to express the pain they faced growing up queer. They join us to talk about navigating being queer and Muslim and their fight to create visibility and representation for the South Asian LGBTQ plus community. Welcome back to Proudly Asian. As you know, June is Pride Month, so we are very proud to celebrate this occasion again on the show to honor the achievements and struggles of the LGBTQ plus community around the world by speaking with guests who will share their personal stories about what it means to be proudly Asian and being part of LGBTQ plus community for them. So for this very special Pride episode, I'm so glad to be joined by Burhan, whose story shows us nothing but resilience and bravery. Welcome to Proudly Asian, Burhan. Thank you so much for joining us from New York. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly a pleasure coming here to your podcast. I've been a great fan of your podcast already. So to me, being Asian and being proud means owning all the identities that I have possessed over the past few years, coming, growing up in Pakistan, then immigrating to the US and now living here as a as a proud uh, Pakistani coming from Muslim background, it means to represent all those identities within within the um, things I possess, etc. So it's not as simple as it sounds. It's also more about learning the history of colonization that Asia faced, specifically South Asia, where LGBTQ plus people were not just banned, but also persecuted heavily. And that created a whole culture of discrimination within South Asia, specifically India and Pakistan, where we might have seen uh, a lot of heteronormativity was brought in in the culture during colonization. So to me, when I celebrate pride, I don't just celebrate for me, I celebrate for the people who cannot um, celebrate in my country because pride, unfortunately, is a privilege only accessible to a few people in the world. And not everybody gets to um, be proud. So to me, pride is a month where I get to like tell the world that, okay, look, these are these have been my struggles and this is just one my my month to celebrate and own all those struggles and tell the world inspiring stories. And pride to me is not just about the pride, but it's, the, it's every day and making it accessible to 
people and LGBTQ plus children who are sitting out there scared, cannot come out because they have fears, they have persecutions that they have already faced and they fear like living an outlier wouldn't be possible. So to me, pride is also a challenge in a way that with the current political climate, even in the U.S. with more than 400 anti-trans LGBTQ plus bills being passed, I'm scared that other countries are also going to follow the tactic of right wing in persecuting the LGBTQ plus community. So, which means like I, I, I came here as an immigrant. I celebrated my pride for the first time last year in, in Boston. And I didn't know if I would get to celebrate Pride 2023, but so far it looks like I am celebrating Pride 2023 and I'm able to still stay in the U.S. But the future has been so unclear that even I don't know if I'll be able to celebrate Pride 2024, which is so sad part because we live as immigrants here on installments. We have so much conditions that we live on. So it is not easy to just um have a clear vision because we don't get the privilege of being born and raised in a western country until we are fully immigrated and also pride is not accessible to many countries like this is still a punishable thing in so many different countries in asia until every child has access to healthcare opportunities anti-discriminatory laws etc i don't think pride is a possibility in many many areas Mm -hmm. so to me when i celebrate pride i celebrate pride as a like a privileged life I'm living, something that I didn't know growing up would be possible. Growing up being out wasn't even a thing that I even thought because I had never seen LGBTQ plus people out there. I had never seen any of that out there. So it's more about seeing that representation and then being that representation for other people because I never get to experience any of that growing up. Yeah, thank you so much for the important context and reminder that even celebrating Pride is a privilege to a lot of people around the world. Not everyone gets to celebrate that. And you also gave us a really important reminder that sometimes for people like yourself, you don't even know in the future if you have the privilege to celebrate Pride Month. So definitely, that's a very powerful reminder for all of us. And I'm also very excited to talk to you about the journey that you you have gone through to get to where you are today, where you are a very outspoken activist, a very inspiring figure within the LGBTQ plus community, especially for Muslim LGBTQ plus community. You know, you are constantly fighting for visibility and representation. So children who are in the LGBTQ plus community in Pakistan or with Muslim background will see you and know that maybe this is a possibility for them in the near future. But we definitely know the journey for you to come to this point was not easy. So for our listeners to get to know a little bit more about your background, I would like to ask you a set of questions that we ask every single guest on Proudly Asian. So Burhan, could you tell us more about your background? Who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? Definitely. I grew up in Rawalpindi, Pakistan. It's a very small town called Dheri Hasanabad. It was a town mostly consisting of middle class, lower middle class, or lower class people in Pakistan. So I get to see a very interesting journey in my way, an interesting perspective and bird view of Pakistan where I started from nothing. My first school, I didn't even have chairs to sit on. And then eventually I moved from one scholarship to another eventually making up to the best high school in Pakistan. 
and that journey was not that easy. Like in grade eight, my bullies broke my arm. I grew up being bullied. And what went, what get me through was just this dream of providing better for my family and being that person in my family who, who not only just gets to go to college, but also do things in a way that I could be the self. I could serve as a role model. I was the first born in my entire, from my mom's side. So there was a lot of people looking up to me in terms of that. I, I had to take a really tough conversation with my dad in grade eight when I told him I want to do British O-level. And everybody in my family, people who also belong to more upper class, they told me, no, O-levels, which is a British curriculum, is not for people from my... Um, but I told my dad, I have already gotten a scholarship and I will prove it that I'll get more scholarship. And I did that. I worked day and night to get straight A's in O-levels, which guaranteed me a spot to study in any uh, best high school in Pakistan. Eventually, when I entered my high school, I remember sitting in an open house and asking my dad, like, oh my God, look at all these people speaking in English fluently. Will I ever be able to do that? And two years later, I graduated as a commencement speaker from that college and I moved to US. So I started at my activism during that time. I was mobilizing a lot of youth to speak on um, climate issues, women empowerment issues, etc. And I was leading protests in Pakistan at the age of 15. And my that background was really found, caught interest with Dickinson College. They gave me a full scholarship to study there where I made where I worked on a lot of different issues in local context. Like I worked on becoming my college, making my college carbon neutral. I also worked on uh, with the local governments on climate action planning and launch statewide um, initiatives in the climate change and also LGBTQ plus space. Now, when the pandemic hit, I was actually at the peak of my career in New York, walking in fashion week. I was booked for the next three months. I had so many shows coming up and then the pandemic happened and I left New York to go back to Pakistan. Now that time was very tricky for me in a way because it brought to me a lot of unprocessed trauma that I didn't think had in me. So I was stuck in my room. I didn't leave my room for like five months. So I was stuck in a life of, you know, self-reflection, like who am I as a person? What what does this mean to me? And I've noticed a lot of the people that I was in Pakistan, maybe like romantically involved with, they started getting engagement to women. And I'm like, these people, they they like men and why is it happening? And then I had, I was starting building LGBTQ plus community in Pakistan. And I noticed all of those people are closeted, and some of them are married to women, even though they are gay. So I noticed this is not just an LGBTQ plus issue. This is more of a women's rights issue because a lot of people don't get to be out because of fears, lack of representation, laws, etc. So during that time, I realized I don't want this to be me. I don't want this life of me. So I decided to be openly LGBTQ in Pakistan. And that came with that threat. I remember I was getting hate from my own family, the, own, the family who used to, you know, aunties used to tell their children, be like Burhan. Look, Burhan getting first position in the class. I want every children to be like Burhan. They started shaming me. They started screenshotting my videos where I had, you know, expressed myself wearing clothing that is traditionally made for a woman or clothing that is considered very too much for maybe a Pakistani conservative society. So eventually I came back to US for my senior year. 
that's when I started doing more creative directing, photo shoots, etc. And they got a lot of attention and I eventually graduated with grades. I had a job lined up and I started working in the um, climate change space as a product manager. But I was also doing my activism on the side and I was organizing protests. I was speaking at protests. I, I mean, I spoke at the UN at the age of 19. And then since then, I've landed a lot of speaking engagements. I, I think more than 50 at this point with like grassroots movements, universities, colleges, etc. And yeah, this has been a very interesting journey just to have started from nothing and building a whole career, a life for myself. And also being able to provide that back to my family. Like I actively try to support my family and my cousins, like sending them money or eat because it is a big festival and just like being able to be there for them if they need me, etc. So it's been an interesting journey. It's definitely incredible that everything that you currently have in your life, it's all achieved by yourself. You fought hard for all of them. Basically, it's like everything is completely self-made. And uh, I'm definitely keen to learn more about, you know, the context at different stages of your life and different moments being an openly queer person. But taking a step back, I know that you identify as queer and non-binary. And I think for some of our listeners, maybe they don't completely understand the term. So I'm wondering if you could explain for those who are not completely familiar what that means. What does it mean to be queer and non-binary? Non-binary is a very broad term that encompasses a wide range of gender identity. It has been loosely used to represent individuals who who could be gender fluid, who could be trans, who could be or who just don't want to who fit in within the traditional uh, binary, like male, female, and they want to have their own word separate from the general binary, etc. And the one of the biggest misconceptions about being non-binary that it is something new. Like non-binary people are new, it's a Gen Z trend or something. No. Non-binary people have been existed for thousands and thousands of years across generation in Asian culture, in South Asian culture, in Pakistani culture, in Muslim cultures, in, in so many different cultures, non-binary and gender non-conforming people have existed and will continue to exist despite the hate and the political backlash they face in so many different countries. Um, so being non-binary for me personally, it can, it can vary from person to person. For me, it is a way of showing people that have transitioned from how I used to be, like I grew up being very strictly, like looking like a, you know, a boy being represented as that mostly. And then I started wearing dresses, I started experimenting myself a lot. And I was getting a lot of hate for it. And I was telling the world that there's not just one way to be a man or woman. There can be infinite ways to be a man and woman. So non-binary is just a term to make people understand of me. It's just a label that I use to so that people can understand me more. It's not for me, it's actually more for people to, um, like I can wear a dress and I can be or I can do whatever I want and still be me. So being non-binary to me is more like telling the world that I don't I don't appreciate the gender binary, but I also want unlimited ways for people to break gender roles, to create more um, gender opportunities and also to break those stereotypes that exist that men have to look a certain way and women have to look a certain way. Especially this is Mental Health Awareness Month. 
uh, this this kind of toxic masculinity mindset that men have to look a certain way is the reason men don't seek out help. Suicide rates among men are so high and they are the deadliest. And also it creates to so many other op- worse oppression towards women, etc. That women have to look a certain way or they are not women. Especially these stereotypes are very much heightened and sharpened for trans women or for trans people where they tell us that you are tr- you're only trans if you look, if you're cis and straight passing, which means if you are conforming, which means you need to have hormones, you need to have surgery, you need to look a certain way to be considered trans. Whereas trans is not about looking like a whiter version of yourself by doing those surgeries, by going through those hormones. It can be for some people, which is gender-affirming healthcare, it should be legal, it should be allowable. But for many people, they don't want to go through surgery, they don't want to go through hormones. So non-binary can also be a term for those people where they are telling the world that I don't care about your perspective of how a woman should look like. I define how I am a woman and I can have hairs. I can be fat. I don't need to look pretty because if you only accept trans people when they are pretty and when they look like a cis version of you or a white version of me, you're accepting conformity. And conformity is a is another form of transphobia, which is so common in LGBTQ acceptance and media platforms where they only accept individuals when they are fitting the gender binary, when they are fitting the this very binary version. And science and studies have shown that gender and sexuality has been socially constructed over the years, over centuries, to preserve white supremacy, to preserve white cis heteronormativity, so that it can benefit the patriarchy. So Actually, liberation of queer people brings liberation for so many different kinds. It, when I always say when a black queer immigrant liberates, the whole world liberates with her because she brings liberation to so many different people. She brings liberation for the women's rights as well by telling the world, look, this is me. I exist. I don't, I don't agree with any of these norms and neither should you because these norms have been historically resulting in genocide against women in so many different countries. Like, let's say in Pakistan, there is colorism is so high where darker-skinned women are persecuted in a way they don't get married, and when they don't get married, people think they're not they're not worthy enough, and that results in violence against them. And then a queer person tells them, they're like, oh, I'm dark-skinned, I have hairs, I'm existing, and I'm living, and I'm thriving, and I'm happy, and that's a threat to a system and that system then tries to displace her because we are fighting for not just ourselves, we are fighting for so many different causes because our liberation does bring liberation to so many different causes. Um, So getting back to your question, non-binary to me is just a way of, it's a power symbol. It's telling the world that change is happening and change is happening now and it's not new. We have been existing for thousands of years. It's just now that we are getting more visibility because uh, the world now loves to make money out of how marginalized we are due to, and that's called rainbow capitalism. It's so true that particularly in like South Asian cultures, the third gender or more has actually been around for thousands or even more years. Which brings me to ask, you know, from a cultural and religious point of view, what does being LGBTQ plus mean in Pakistan? So Pakistan, many people don't know the term LGBTQ, it, or even if they know, they know it in a very negative context. Like my parents didn't know what it is. 
my parents didn't even know what gay meant or what the acronym meant or any history behind it. They have just seen transgender people and those people are from the intersex community. They see We see them begging on streets. We see them literally begging for their survival because they are reduced to a life of poverty, having no jobs, having no opportunities. So they have to only reside on either sex work or dancing gigs or begging on streets to make a living. And even then the life is, and that's the only LGBTQ representation we see in Pakistan. So that's why I, one of the reasons I get so much hate is because then they see me thriving when they see me like literally getting the best education, doing all these amazing things, speaking at all these iconic events, they are triggered. They're triggered that how can somebody from Pakistan, when we see only trans people, people love to make, people love to help us when we are marginalized. But the moment we start getting empowered, the moment we start getting ahead, or not even just ahead, just like living our life and being ourselves, people are triggered. People want to because our existence is a threat to so many systems of power. So those systems of power tend to eliminate our existence in a way to preserve their power, if that makes sense. When I was doing a bit of research for this episode, I found it so interesting in the sense of that transgender people, like you mentioned, they are around, they are represented in a lot of South Asian nations, including Pakistan, but they are also expected to stay in a certain category of jobs or social class. And their presence in society is usually tolerated and are considered sort of like blessed in the Pakistani culture. But in Pakistan, there's also this Transgender Person Protection of Rights Act. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. What I found so interesting was that while this kind of law exists, there's also no laws to protect transgender people from discrimination and violence. And in that sense, like violence and discrimination against transgender people in Pakistan have also caused deaths, even as recent as 2020. Yeah, that is true. You are exactly right about the act and that protects some rights of trans people in Pakistan. Mm. However, not those rights are barely implemented. Those laws are barely implemented. I was actually just watching a documentary last night with my partner where we were um, we were reflecting on this documentary and the trans woman was saying, if a dog get killed on a street versus a transgender being killed, people will give more sympathies for the dog being killed or they will care more about the dog being killed on the street than the transgender person. People... That's the, and that's the sad comparison she made that people care more about a stray dog dying than a trans person on the street. And that tells you everything about the trans representation and opportunities that exist. And it's very sad in terms of what they get and how mistreatly they are done and how that culture has created a mix of colonization, post-colonization effect, etc. that the community faces. And that act that you mentioned is now being challenged. Just right, right being in the US is challenging rights of trans people. Politicians in Pakistan are exactly copy-pasting the same strategy. That same act that protected those rights and now that act is being challenged because the next elections are coming so politicians are challenging that act. Like, no, being trans Western agenda, it's LGBTQ agenda, so eliminate all trans people. They're using these words in their speeches. They're using that we are not going to accept this LGBTQ thing. 
And I myself has been a victim of uh, political like backlash in the past. So that act is it's scary that how that act is getting backlash, even though it has been there for such a long time to protect rights of uh, transgender people in Pakistan, some rights, again, not all, just very bare minimum. And I would like to further understand the context of being LGBTQ plus in the religious context, like being Muslim, if you are part of LGBTQ plus, is it essentially against the values of Muslim not really. I feel like people have a very patriarchal, mm. um, due to culture and so much like misinformation, people have a very rigid view of religion. Like, no, I don't think religion, any religion teaches hate. And if it does, like people need to re-question that religion. People need to question their fundamental values, etc. I have had the privilege of meeting some other people who are very progressive. Like there is a nonprofit in the US that is called Muslims for Progressive Values. They are all about gender equity. They're all about gender equality. And um, also specifically about LGBTQ plus, right? So I feel like the interpretation of religion itself has been has been deteriorated, has been manufactured over the years to preserve again, like white cis supremacy and also like just heteronormativity and patriarchy. Mm. So it's not really the religion, I would say that, because I have never seen in any way in Quran, I was a very religious person growing up. I don't think in any textbook or anything it says anything bad about LGBTQ plus community. In fact, it's the opposite. So people have interpreted religion in a very different way mixed with culture. So when people come and tell me, like, you are a sin, you are going to hell, and I'm like, I just try to ignore it because at this point, I feel like it's just the inter- their own interpretation of the religion that they project the hate on us. So getting back to your question, being queer and being Muslim is very different for different people to me. I don't practice, like I'm I'm not practicing, like I'm not praying active. I, I, I prayed like five, six years ago last time. So I, I'm not actively practicing religious anymore. However, there are people who do, like I'm, involved in another nonprofit. It's called Queer Muslims of Boston. And there is a queer there's a queer Muslims network globally as well that I have previously collaborated with. So it's a different interpretation for different people. But those all interpretations lies some of those interpretations lies on very progressive values of equality, justice and equity. And also fighting Islamophobia. Like I face so much Islamophobia in the US. My first name is Muhammad. So I am discriminated by white people for being Muhammad, that I'm discriminated by my own community, South Asian community for being Muhammad because they there is so much Islamophobia within the South Asian community due to that. And then within the Muslim community, of course, they can never accept me because I am queer and that. So I face multiple levels of discrimination throughout my life. And it, it continues to happen because people have biases against me when I enter the room. From my observation, a lot of Asian countries with heavy Muslim presence, being LGBTQ plus tends to be illegal in those nations. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard maybe in Christianity, they would say LGBTQ plus, is, they don't recognize that. So I was kind of wondering if in that context, is it punishable in the religion or in the Pakistan nation? But that brings me to ask, growing up queer and non-binary and also coming from a Muslim background, have you? ever felt being rejected by 
both communities, like Muslim and also the LGBTQ plus community, has anyone ever told you that, oh, you're Muslim, so you can't be LGBTQ plus or vice versa? Oh, yeah, definitely my whole life. I mean, it continues to happen. I don't think I receive acceptance from my own community in Pakistan. And I don't think I, in my lifetime I can receive that because Pakistan community, I'm too radical. I'm too much westernized. And for the LGBTQ community in Pakistan, they see me that, oh, don't come to Pakistan holding a pride flag. We don't need your help. We are good at it. So they have accepted their fate already. They've accepted the fate that they would rather marry a woman and live a closeted life that actually live, that actually have a life where they can get married, where they can have a possible out life like they deserve. So they have already settled for less. That's why I I don't understand when even the LGBTQ plus community within uh, within Pakistan sometimes do not support me because they think they are already good being hiding. And many times those people were telling me they come from very rich and privileged families. So being out doesn't really hurt them because they have money, they have influence in Pakistan. But what about the less privileged families? Those people get persecuted. They get put into conversion therapy. They get beaten up or left alone if they are trans in the streets. A lot of these trans people we see in the street, they are just abandoned by their families. They come from somewhere, right? They come from families who don't want a trans person, so they just send them because being trans is the worst thing somebody could have in a, in a Pakistani society. That's how they think about it. To me, being trans is the most powerful thing somebody could have. But unfortunately, not everybody understands that. And you're right, like many Muslim countries do have rights and I wonder and it's a history of different and all those countries actually have been colonized as well most of those countries have suffered colonization like Islam itself when it started progressing and it was under the leaders of strict Muslim leaders you in the historically we didn't see these laws we only saw these laws against LGBTQ plus implemented during British colonization most of the time that okay, let's ban trans people, let's ban this, let's do this, let's do that, let's put these restrictions on. They can't enter this space. This space is too good for too bad, or you get the point, right? So most of these laws are implemented throughout the culture, throughout the cultural change that happened. So I again don't want to defend, but I also want to defend the Islamophobia that people face in the US due to these stereotypes that uh, that Muslims community are very conservative, etc. There are people like no, everybody is different, and a lot. Some people are very progressive. Of course, I face hate from some people every day, but I also feel loved by some people every day who are from those backgrounds. Yeah, definitely. I think when faith and religion are at play, there's so much more consideration for the LGBTQ plus community to consider whenever they are thinking about whether or not they should live outwardly LGBTQ plus or even when they consider coming out. Because you did mention earlier that you would receive death threats on your DMs and your family from Pakistan would. I remember you mentioned that in one of the social media posts that your family messaged or called you telling you that because of the activism work that you've been doing, it's making them hard to find husbands. Like some of your cousins told you that, is that right? Yep. So in our patriarchal context, arranged marriages are still very common in Pakistan. So when a woman is born, their mother already starts thinking about teaching her a certain thing, certain values that makes her a good wife. Even though this is a 
progressive families send their daughters to get education, the expectation of marriage is still there. So arranged marriage is a big part of a woman's life in Pakistan. And that is sad. I know that it's very patriarchal. However, when I am being queer and I I am in some time relation with that woman, men in my family or men in my families have used me as a scapegoat to put violence on the woman in my family or to or to at least taunt them if not violence. So for example, one of my cousins, she was married and she moved to South Africa. She's my first cousin. I have not seen her in 10 years. Her in-laws started pressuring her that, look at your first cousin. He is wearing all this. And they started like argue, make arguments with her on about me. Now I haven't seen her in 10 years. My parents haven't seen her in 10 years. She lives in a different country, but my existence is putting her at risk. And that's sad. And that's just one example. Other women in my family have been shamed. Women in my family get shamed every day. Though that's patriarchy. That's why I tell people it's not um, it's not their fault that I'm queer. Also, like even why are women answerable to men? Like they shouldn't be answering to anyone. But in a patriarchal context, they have to just go through all these daily taunts that oh look uh, look your your sister's son is gay. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry he's mentally ill or something like that, you know. These kind of stereotypes does exist in those conservative my family. And that's valid for throughout Pakistan. In fact, my family is still very much more progressive than 80% of Pakistani families. So mm-hmm. if they can feel such backlash on every day, on every basis, I can't imagine for our typical, like, um, other families who face the same backlash, it's favor. And given that context... I'm wondering, was there a point in your life that you finally decided to come out or have you always sort of live a life in a way that it wouldn't be hard for people to pick up that you are queer and non-binary? Definitely. So I feel like coming out is a privilege, again, only available to certain people. I didn't have that privilege growing up. I was a person who would enjoy, who enjoyed breaking gender norms from very beginning. And I did, I wasn't doing it because I knew anything about LGBTQ plus community. I knew I doing it because it felt authentic to me. Like I would catwalk in that classroom, dance on item song, which are traditionally for women. People start calling me Khusra, which in English means the T word training from a very, uh, which is a derogatory term used to represent trans community. They started calling me before I even knew what it meant on streets, in school, pretty much everywhere I grew up listening to that term. So now I'm owning that term and I'm, yes, I am. And then they tell me, no, you're actually not. You are a man. Be a man. And I'm like, when I was a man, you tell me I'm not. And now when I, and I'm telling me I'm non-binary, you're telling me to go back to being a man. So it's like, I'm not confused. Only people here confused are my bullies and my haters who cannot just grasp this simple idea that uh, my existence is valid and it is thriving and I'm successful in what I do and I'm continue to do great these great things like I have a book deal coming with Cambridge University Press so and I for for being 23 I have been financially independent since the age of since like last eight years and that's really cool and I want other LGBTQ plus people to be independent like that so they don't they don't have to worry about being dependent on anyone like I've been unemployed for four months but I have enough savings that I can last myself for a really good time 
Mm-hmm. And have you personally come out to your parents? And yep. if it's okay to share, how did they react when you finally had that conversation with them? They didn't know what it meant. I I feel like I come out to them every day. <laughs> uh, I try to remind them, and their their default is still like, "Oh, you're dating a boy, really? But you should date a girl." And their default is still a girl. Like I tell them every day, no, a boy. But their default is still a, oh, a girl every time. So I did come out to them. I tried to explain them. But the only privilege I got here in my coming out is that I have already been independent my whole life. So when I came out in 2020, it was easier for me to say things because I've been very bossy in my household. Like I make my own decisions. I've been making my own decisions from a very early age. So my parents didn't really have a say in it. In fact, they usually like, just obey what I say. <laughs> and so even to these days, your parents would still be like, when are you going to bring home a girlfriend? Do they still say that to you? They have, my relatives and my parents mm. have said that. Yeah, but we actually just had a conversation one month ago about similar thing when I told them, I just told you a thousand times, a boy, a boy, a boy, a boy, a boy. I'm not getting a girl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that if I... Like, why would I waste a life for a poor woman? Like, this is so bad. And a lot of that still continues to happen due to LGBTQ plus people not having rights. And then they have this expectation of marriage. Everybody in Pakistan have the expectation of marriage or you are not considered worthy enough, which is really patriarchal. I know that every day you're still fighting for that acceptance. You're still fighting for the representation of people who look like you, who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, which brings me to ask you about your activism work, because definitely what you've been doing, you are turning all the hate and negativity directed against you throughout the years into motivation to work as an activist, to fight for the advancement of South Asian and Pakistani LGBTQ plus community. So I'm just wondering, wondering if you could tell us more about the activism work that you've been doing and what you've achieved so far and what do you hope to achieve eventually? Like there's so much to achieve. I would say if I, I haven't achieved anything for my community, definitely have achieved many things for myself, but I want to get to a point where, and I don't even know if that's possible in my lifetime, like where an LGBTQ plus person in Pakistan can be fully out or can get healthcare without facing discrimination, can go to school without getting bullied, and can can get a fair chance of everything in life, like education, healthcare, etc., so that they can live a live a life that they deserve. Education changed my life. So imagine how much education can change. So maybe I my dream would be to build schools for queer people without facing political backlash or something like that in Pakistan, once I'm able, once I'm enough financially able to do that. But for me, my activism right now looks like just being still telling the world I exist. Many people are don't want me to exist. And specifically in, in the US as well, like South Asian communities don't include me because I they think I'm not Pakistani enough or I'm not Indian enough. They still have a lot of biases against trans people. So they only accept trans and queer people when they look certain way. And that is a big issue with the South Asian American community because they don't know what inclusivity means themselves. So they project all their pain on us. I always tell people, trans people like the punching bag of so many different communities because they can put, we're just a mirror. What people see in us is a reflection of who they are. So instead of leaving their comfort zone and challenging their biases, they just project hate on us. So I still 
continue to fight to increase my representation within the South Asian community and also outside within the broader community. I've been the headliner speaker for Provincetown Pride, which is the world's biggest gay town in the world. And I have also spoken at about, at this point, more than 50 plus universities, colleges, conferences about topics in DEI, topics in AI, tech, and topics in LGBTQ plus inclusion, climate change, etc. So my activism right now looks like um, going to protest, speaking, and also just thriving on social media. I feel like just existing on social media, despite facing so much backlash, is an activism itself because my videos reach on TikTok, my videos reach on average like 50,000, 60,000 views. So I'm reaching out to those communities that have not seen LGBTQ plus people. So some of that activism looks like that. I also know you turned your activism work into some sort of creative pursuit as well. You turned to fashion and photography and produced some of the most beautiful portraits I've ever seen with such confidence and pride. Like when I looked at all your photos, those dresses are just so beautiful. And then I was just thinking to myself, oh, wow, one day when I have my photos taken, I want to look as confident as you look in your photos. So. I want to know more about your photography, your fashion work. How did you get started with all that? Thank you. So it was during my study abroad in England. I was discovered by somebody in a cafe shop. They're like, oh, are you a model? You look great. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And like, oh, we are actually having a fashion show in the London Fashion Week. You should come. And from there, the rest was history. That first time going to London Fashion Week really boosted my confidence. And... Mm -hmm. Then when I left London and left left England and I went back to New York, I started going to castings, and I get noticed very easily in New York because I always dressed up really like fancy, always dressed up like you know very creative way. I started wearing very masculine outfits at first, but then the pandemic hit, and remember that story I told you about me discovering myself during pandemic, and that's when I started experimenting with gender norm, experimenting with like why do men have to do these things a certain way. Like, why I cannot wear a skirt? Like, what, I will still be the same person. So soon experimenting and posting all these things on social media, I transitioned in a way that now when I think about clothing, I don't think about gender. I don't think about, like, I think about whatever would look best with my body type and whatever would whatever suits my mood. Of course, I still have to conform many times, unfortunately, because I go to conferences, I go to, I'm going to a conference tomorrow. And the biggest question is what to wear. Like, do, can I, if in an ideal world, I would love to be myself, but I'm meeting the mayor of Boston, Michelle, who are meeting some of these very high profile people. So I'm also like, are they going to accept me if I show up with a dress? So maybe I should wear pants and a blazer. So like, there's a lot, many times I, con I conform myself just so that I reach my goal that I want to achieve. And to get to that goal, I might have to like, like not be myself at certain events and certain places. And that's unfortunate, but I want to get there where I want to. So whatever it takes for me, whatever hard work it takes for me to get where I want. So I also know that your activism work includes normalizing the presence of the LGBTQ plus community in the workplace. So if I would like to ask for your advice, what are some of the tangible ways that co-workers and workplaces can be effective allies to their LGBTQ plus colleagues? Definitely. DEI is a big topic in America. Now all these big companies have DEI team that are specifically working to make this place inclusive. 
So the first thing is when they hire those DEI people, recruiters, they should be diverse. They should not be just white cisgender people. They should have multiple diverse people helping LGBT, helping people on board. I feel like onboarding should be the most pleasant experience you could make for another employee. And that can that can set the precedence for that employee to be in that company, grow, et cetera. And within, when somebody enters the company, there should be trainings, they should train um, managers on how to be inclusive, how to check your bias when you enter a room, how to not take up space from other people. Uh, there should be trainings on that. People should invest heavily on DEI trainings and not just on performative rainbow capitalism and posting, changing their logos during Pride, which many companies do. They will change their logos on Pride, but will never invest on people and people's happiness by doing these trainings, doing these workshops, and also have more grassroots activists talking about their experiences. Like, I think they should have during Pride or throughout the year, more LGBTQ plus people speaking about their experiences, not just famous, you know, people, but just people who are also struggling, people who are also in pain, like have all those voices being represented. And now it's time for us to move on to the next segment, which is called Rapid Fires. In this segment, I'll be asking my guests biased questions that they've got asked at some point in life. And in Burhan's case, biased questions that people ask queer and non-binary people. So, Burhan, are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's go. First question. What does it mean to be a queer Muslim? Being queer Muslim means just owning your background. Like, I definitely, when I was coming out, I started having questions about Muslim and I realized I'm developing internalized Islamophobia and that was harmful. So I had to unlearn that mindset and just be able to tell the world, yes, I'm from a Muslim background and I am queer and I exist. I have lived my whole life as a religious person. Now that I'm queer, it's not like I can change my name. Everybody tells me every day, like, oh, change your name. Your name is Muhammad. I'm like, I'm not going to change my name. I love my name and I am who I am. So I'm not going to change that for anybody. So being, it's, it's, uh, it's being rebellious. It's is being who I am and giving people the opportunity to be themselves because a lot of people think you cannot, you have to pick one or you cannot be two. The next question, are you a girl or a boy? Why don't you pick one? Oh my God, I get this question asked the time. Why be, and I always tell them when people ask me that you can be so many things, so why pick one? Like just, I can, I can look great in a wig and I can also look great in a suit. So why do I pick one? And it's not just about looking great, it's more about just getting away from the idea, this very socially constructed binary ideas that men have to look a certain way, women have to look, behave, laugh. And that has been becoming so much oppressive, specifically for women. So this challenging this idea means I am telling the world there is infinite ways to be men, there are infinite ways to be women. That's what liberation means. And that's why I always say queer and trans liberation brings liberation to everyone, so it's not just about being a boy or a girl it's about liberating from the patriarchal norms that have confined what women can do and what women should not do etc etc and that have confined their whole life to a life of misery and a genocide yeah of all the things that you can be why only pick one but the next question is is pakistan in the middle east oh my god i when i moved to 
Joel, this is a question I was asked almost by everyone. People still ask me if Pakistan is in Middle East, and I tell them all the time, no, it's in South Asia. And then I try to question, really? So where is the border? Where do we draw the line? Is it Afghanistan? Is it Iran? No, Pakistan is not in Middle East. Babe, just, just take a geography lesson. Yeah. So I think there is a lot of Pakistani phobia, Islamophobia, all of that developed post 9/11. and people still haven't educated themselves on like asking these very biased questions to somebody else like yeah and finally when did you turn gay is this a western influence i was always born gay i remember being in 7th grade and looking at my like just like sexualizing and i was very sexual since a very early age in my life and as i should the only issue that i didn't get sex education and that's why i'm a very like a proponent of having sex education in school so that children can make teenagers can make wise decisions they don't make any foolish decisions so i didn't turn gay the the us did not turn me gay i have always been queer i have always been um gender fluid and now i'm just being able to show that to the world and that's a threat to them because they thought my existence is not valid but now i'm thriving and my and me thriving from a system that is made to dismantle me is a is what that results in this kind of hateful question many time. Thank you so much for playing this round of rapid bias. And now to wrap up the episode, I just have one final question for you, Berhan. To you, what does it mean to be proudly queer and Muslim? Thank you. It means to me that just be yourself. Like again, these are all the labels, these are all the identities I use to not just represent me but represent the communities that don't have a voice so many times when I'm saying these I'm using these labels I'm trying to project those voices all the teams I've gotten but people sharing me their issues people sharing me the kind of things they face kind of issues I faced and the kind of issues all these communities face so talking about those issues by using my identity has allowed me to create opportunities talk about issues and dismantling people if i can change mindset of one person and if i can make one person feel accepted i think that's the job done i don't care about like doing that to 10000 but it's always change always happen with one person so to me being all of those things mean a token of rebellious and a token of hope that there is hope for our communities to grow to flourish to be liberated one day That's beautiful. Thank you so much for doing what you do and being the hope for all the children that look like you, that are like you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Berhan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure meeting you. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Leave us a 5-star review on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and signing off for now. I'm Isabel Wong. This, this, this.